Hey, do you have any idea how much a year's tuition is at the University of Denver? You do, right, Kirsten? It's like 40, 50,000 bucks or something, right? I mean, it's just psycho. But check this out. You get to hear um, Allison Schofield this morning, Dr. Allison Schofield from the University of Denver for free. Is that like a bargain, okay? You, I mean, if you feel like you need to drop 40 grand in the offering plate, that's fine. But you get to hear it for free this morning. Uh, this is Allison, and Allison uh, is associate professor, professor of Hebrew and Judaic studies at the University of Denver and uh, speaks like 11 ancient languages, something like that. Seriously, something like that, something something like that right? Like that. That's just crazy. Yeah. And uh, then's written a couple books, working on another book now. And this is the most amazing thing, okay? This makes her like the Peyton Manning of biblical archaeology or, or the Indiana Jones or something. And, and, um, and that is that she goes back like each year and works on the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? That is so, do you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? She's going to tell you a little bit about it, but it's like the, the coolest thing ever, okay? Um, they're written like before uh, Christ was born. And you go back and work on them, so that means like you, what do you do, like correct the spelling? Yeah, or that yeah, kind of, right. Like erase stuff? Yeah. Go, that can't be right. It must be something else. So anyway, the best thing about Allison, though, is that she's just a great person. She's been part of our church now for um, a few years. And so uh, I asked her a while ago, man, would you ever talk to all of us? And she said, yes. So we're just really uh, glad for that. And and for who, who she is and who God has made her, and let's pray for her, okay? Father, thank you so much for Allison. Thank you, Lord, for your life in her. Thank you for her love for you and her love for the people around her. And Lord God, we ask that you would open our hearts and you'd speak to our hearts through Allison and bless Allison as she's doing it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Well, welcome, Sanctuary. Uh, it's really a privilege to be speaking to you today. I have to say that when Peter and Francis asked me, I was in Jerusalem. I was very excited, but I had my doubts. I had my hesitations. I uh, was speaking to a really good friend of mine in Jerusalem about it, and I said, you know, man, the, the preaching here is so good, and to follow Peter on his Easter, famous Easter Sunday sermon, I don't know. And, you know, I, I, I teach, I talk to students, I give, read papers in international conferences, but preaching? I'm not so sure about that. I think when the time comes, I'm going to be nervous. She leaned into me and said, Allison, God is going to be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Probably rightly so. So to start out this morning, we're going to start somewhere safe, and we're actually going to read the words of God together. So I'd like to have you all stand up with me, and hopefully if this works. I'm going to start you off. Um, we're going to be reading Psalm 91, and then I'm going to stop. You keep going. So let's read the scripture together. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence. Ten thousand at your right hand, 
it will not come near you. <laughs> See the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The most high. my refuge. be seated. So I hope that you rest in the power of the spoken word today. Um, not my words, but the word of the Lord. Um, and I'm going to come back to this psalm, but uh, it's, it's something to think about how many times you wake up in the morning um, and speak those words to the Lord and say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. A few things about the promises in the Psalms and in the Bible in general that sometimes we forget as modern readers, one of which is that these texts, the whole Bible, was never originally meant to be read silently. Nothing wrong with reading silently, but that's actually more of a recent phenomenon. So reading was always done out loud, um, and it was also almost always done in community. And sometimes I think we do lose that, the power of that um, in our sort of modern sensitivities. We sort of do it as a devotion, but there's some power in speaking the word uh, of scripture. So as we think about those words that we just read, can you imagine where they might have been spoken? In what context they might have been performed? Well, we have a little help. So, if you don't mind my, and allow my inner nerd to come out for a little bit, just for a minute, um, we actually know more about this psalm because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you don't know what they are, I will give you your Reader's Digest two-sentence introduction. Uh, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were 900 different manuscripts that were discovered in 1947 in 11 caves by the Dead Sea in what was Jordan and now Israel West Bank. And these fragments really revolutionized our understanding of the time of Jesus, Judaism in its, uh, in its manifestation then, and also the Bible. So um, among the amazing things of the scrolls is that it is a rare window into the time of Judaism in which Jesus and the early Christians began that we have no other texts from this time period. Manuscripts written on perishable material just doesn't last. So suddenly we have new texts we'd never read, things we'd never seen, new psalms, new information, and we also have the second thing, even more important, the oldest copies of the Bible. 
Now this is the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible because it was before Jesus' time. These scrolls were written about a century before and then during the time of Jesus. So prior to the discovery of the scrolls, our earliest full copies of the Old Testament were from the Middle Ages. And uh, so, you know, people said, well, the Bible's been copied and recopied for thousands of years. Things must have been changed. They must have changed or dropped out or, cha or, or added. When we found the scrolls, we discovered actually those copies of the biblical books were incredibly close to what we have in the Bible. So it's just fascinating. So this is a plug to maybe take a class sometime and learn more about what it says about the Bible and pay some tuition. I think a lot of tuition. Uh, it doesn't go to me, don't worry. It's not a plug for me. But what we learn from the scroll, a couple things. One of which about the Psalms. The Psalms at the time of Jesus were actually considered to be prophetic. They were prophecy. I don't think we get the sense of that as modern readers. We read them, they're devotional poems, they're beautiful, they're inspiring, but we don't necessarily think of them as prophetic, but we know that they did. In fact, this community that wrote the scrolls wrote commentaries on the psalm saying this is what it really means. So uh, we see in Psalm 22, I think Peter mentioned on Easter, that Jesus says Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me on the, on the cross? That wasn't just coincidence. He was kind of speaking, this was prophesied. So we learn that psalms are prophetic, like the one we just read earlier, but we learn something even f more fascinating about Psalm 91 that we just read. Basically, we did not know this before, but we found that Jews at the time of Jesus would speak Psalm 91 as the psalm against the forces of darkness. You know, everybody's got to love speaking about the forces of darkness. <laughs> I don't, can't believe I'm talking about the forces of darkness, but here I am. Um, so that was the psalm that was spoken against the devil. That was the one that was performed. Um, so we really learn, we're like, wow, this is, this is the one that was spoken against demons. Now again, as an academic, you get really uncomfortable when you talk about demons and demonic forces, but I know by the time of Jesus, uh, demons had become quite prominent in the, in the ideas and the writings of the Jews, and they got really cool names like Belial and Azazel and all sorts of things, and that Satan becomes, in, in the writings, he becomes the, the sort of the chief arch demon in this time. Now, I can't say that I understand the workings of this, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand the forces of the spiritual world, but I do think that there's a passage today that would be um, very useful for us. It's very interesting, um, and it's the passage of Jesus encountering uh, Satan in the wilderness. Now, Psalm 91 will actually help us understand this passage, so if you keep it in the back of your mind, see if you can understand how the scrolls sort of illuminate this passage. So Luke 4, 1 through 14. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, Deuteronomy 8.3. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, Deuteronomy 6.13. 
Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, quote, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put your Lord the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy 6.16. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to the Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all of the surrounding country. Fascinating. Is this so many things I could talk about in this passage, but I'm going to take a little bit of maybe a different bent today. Um, I'm going to actually talk about this wilderness experience that, that Jesus goes into. And what does it mean to be in the wilderness, and what is the desert? What is the wilderness? So to put it in context, this happened right after Jesus was baptized um, in the Jordan River and then right before he started his ministry. So it's this real pivotal moment in Jesus's life. Um, and so why the desert? Why the wilderness? Now, I have to um, be a little bit honest with you. I've been thinking a lot about the wilderness for a long time. Um, as, a, as an academic, I've been researching it as a topic um, in sort of that sterile academic way where you look up the root to certain Hebrew words and you, you know, gather scriptures and things. Um, and I've been writing a book on the desert or the wilderness, um, and I keep rewriting it. Because every time I put something down, I encounter something new about it. So um, it is generally thought of as a place of testing and trial. We start from the Israelites wandering in the desert in, in Exodus. Um, so there's sort of general ideas when you say I'm going through a real desert period, people sort of know what you're talking about. But personally, um, I found out a little bit more uh, on a more intimate level. A couple, uh, three years ago, actually I was... Uh, entered into my own wilderness period, I was hit by a truck. Um, while training for a triathlon, I was riding my bike on Bucktel, and a guy ran a stop sign and hit me with his pickup truck. And suddenly my world became a little different and my journey looked a little bit more like the desert to me. Um, so I had a broken back, and destroyed knee and concussion, all sorts of fun. Luckily to be alive though. So the last three years were filled with struggle, chronic pain, loneliness, um, and a lot of just grappling with what it means to go from a place of strength to a place of weakness. So wilderness suddenly, my wilderness book got a new rewrite after that. So it's uh, constantly changing. But hopefully by the end of this short talk, um, we, you can see a little bit of what maybe I've learned through the Lord, that those desert places actually can be real places of beauty, and they can actually be places of redemption as well. So, so back to the passage. It says, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And so what do we learn here about wilderness? Well, to give you a little bit my niggly details about wilderness, can't, 
give you the Hebrew word. Um, it, in Hebrew, it's midbar, and it's a, a word that, of course, in this passage is in Greek, um, eremos, but it goes back to this idea of midbar. And in the mindset of Hebrew, now here's a little inside to Hebrew. Hebrew has about one-fifth of vocabulary of English, so there are fewer words, and the words mean more things, which is beautiful, and it can have all of these different meanings, like Midbar can be desert, it can be wilderness, it can be plain, it can be all sorts of things. But sometimes it makes us a little uncomfortable in terms of those literalists who try to take certain words like yom, day, in Genesis 1 and then get their panties all in a knot trying to, you know, explain all of that. I didn't say that in church, did I? <laughs> Strike that out. <laughs> Glenn. Um, so you can see how I feel about it. It's the beauty of the Hebrew language. And so in that sense, desert can mean many things, or wilderness, it's all the same word. But what we also find out when we look at it, it is in, in the mindset of the Jews and the, and the early Israelites, it was a place of danger, it was a place of wild animals, um, it was kind of the place where you were afraid. Um, it was also the place where we had spirits living. So um, we had good spirits, bad spirits. Um, it was dangerous, but also, this is where we see in the Bible, this is where you encounter God. So the, the Israelites, when they're at Mount Sinai, they have the greatest revelation of all of God, in the wilderness, as well as Hagar in Genesis 16 and 21, who runs out into the wilderness fleeing Sarah with her son, and she encounters God. This is the first time God is revealed to someone directly in the Bible. A woman, she's African, she's of a different race, she's a slave. So we see this beautiful place of the wilderness being a place of encounter with the divine. The interesting thing about the word is that it doesn't necessarily mean dry. It's, at the very root of it, it means it's a place of uninhabited, it's a, a place where no inhabitants are. It's uncivilized. It's not controlled or ordered by human creation. And this is really fascinating to me because you think I'm going to the desert, it's, it's, it's dry. It's like, no, it's a place of non-humanness. Even chaos, which, of course, God speaks into chaos in Genesis and sort of orders it, right, and creates, but has to have that chaos. So it's almost like that place of outside of creation. So Jesus chose to go into that unknown, into the unhuman places, but was submitted to the spirit of the Lord, as we see. Now, to get you a little bit more in the mindset of where this place was, it was the Judean desert. Since I was there three days ago, four days ago, I took a little clip for you. So this clip will give you a sense of the, the, the non-human places of the Judean desert, um, an early morning rush hour in the Judean desert. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> 
I think that every talk somewhere, somehow, has to incorporate camels. It just, it's, it's just my personal opinion. Um, so you get a sense of this place. This isn't somewhere you go by choice, necessarily. So we see in our passage then um, that, that Jesus goes to this place and he's tempted. He sort of puts himself there and puts himself to the test. The question I have for us as readers is, should we be surprised by this? Um, and is this something that might have meaning for us? So simply looking at this passage, there are a few things that come out. One of them is that temptation is really inevitable, or testing, which is maybe a better translation. Testing is inevitable. Um, it's going to be anywhere, even in, in the wilderness. Now, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. So again, it's not necessarily, we identifying with Christ should not be too surprised that even Christ um, in, in his place of perfection would be encountering these kinds of tests. So usually we think of temptation as something we fall into. Evil things, right? Wine, women, watching toddlers and tiaras. <laughs> sex, drugs, or if you're me, white chocolate raspberry cheesecake, um, these evil things that somehow are just luring us in. Um, but in this case, it's not the same. This is a different case. Satan does not take Jesus down to go boozing it up on Colfax. Um, he doesn't take a wrong turn and end up in Vegas. He actually chooses to be in a position of vulnerability. So Jesus, who, cho who walked in perfection, chose to follow the Spirit and go to those non-human places and to deny himself. So even in God's country, the wilderness, um, he encountered these temptations. In our own lives, I feel like those voices um, are going to, they're going to chase us as well especially when we are taking on new accountability or new commitments for the, for the kingdom, um, it's not going to be surprising that we're going to have that, those tests or the challenge. Um, if Jesus, of the most pure heart, would encounter that, then we, of course, should not be surprised. I think sometimes the Christians get really wrapped up in, oh, you know, if I just, if I did, if I read my Bible more often or if I listened, I came and heard Peter every Sunday, I wouldn't have these thoughts. Yeah, because that would be the reason that they wouldn't have any pure, unpure thoughts. Yeah, so we get that sense of like, why, why? I mean, I'm just doing something wrong, which I think this is a great example for us to know that even Jesus would encounter those sort of demonic or uh, challenging voices. So it's a real mistake to think that our trials are our fault or that we need to necessarily avoid all challenges. If we're stepping out for the kingdom, fighting for injustice, taking that new job, volunteering our time at church, or stepping out to love the unlovable of the world, we will face the accuser. To quote a very authoritative source, the Princess Bride. Um, if you remember the man in black, the masked man who was Wesley, said to Buttercup, he said, um, I didn't get this right, life is pain, your highness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. I think in some ways that's true, um, but it's kind of all about how we deal with that pain, how we respond to those challenges, what we do with that. 
So first thing then is it in, it's inevitable, so we're not alone in our sufferings. But are we going to mask the trial or mask the pain and pretend it's not there, or are we going to embrace it? So what's more, when looking at the wilderness, I found that wilderness really became to me as symbolic as a place of vulnerability. It is a place of vulnerability. We are called to walk even through or even embrace those places of vulnerability. So Jesus embraced the solitude and simplicity of the wilderness, and we can see that he took on the greatest example of vulnerability for us. Now, how can you be vulnerable and be in a place of redemption at the same time? Well, it seems like opposites, but I have uh, a few thoughts about that. So Jesus gives us three examples of what, how to respond to um, temptation. And the first one, and how to be vulnerable, the first one is, of course, he's tested with bread vulnerable to his physical needs. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Now, my being vulnerable here, I mean relinquishing control over. Something I don't do very well. <laughs> This is all spoken to myself today. <laughs> but the first thing we see is bread. Now, it's not booze, boobs, Justin Bieber, you know, we don't see anything inherently bad. <laughs> it's bread. Bread? Hmm. So I don't generally think of bread as inherently bad or evil. However, in the context, Jesus was fasting. He was broken. He was in that place of vulnerability. So to eat bread at that moment would have been the right thing at the wrong time. It would have been uh, bringing wholeness before his brokenness was, was finished. So in this temporary state of self-denial, it would have been wrong to put bread, something normally good, before the kingdom. Sometimes I think, too, in our own lives, although there are real evil things that tempt us, I think sometimes the worst temptations are those very things that can be very good. Um, we just put them in the right, the wrong place, the right time, the right place at the wrong, yeah, good things in the wrong time. So he's tempted to put good things and turn good things into great things. Um, and sometimes we have a tendency to want to do that as well. So is there anything wrong with having nice clothes, a warm house, or fine crusty French bread? No, in the proper context and submitted to God, whatever controls you is your Lord. If you live for food, you would be controlled by food. If you live for those you're trying to please, then you would be dominated by them as well. So if it's more important to you than God, you are a slave to that. Perhaps you need to take yourself to a place of simplicity and to a wilderness place. Now, in this passage, it's interesting because uh, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times. This is a book that's full of references to the wilderness, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. So you see, sneaky, there's this parallelism between Israel in the wilderness and Jesus. Israelites wandered for how many years? 40. Jesus goes to the desert for 40. You can't ever look at numbers in the Bible and just think, huh, they're just random. They never are, almost never. So 40 years, he's going back to the desert for 40 days. Also, what happened in the wilderness for the Israelites? They were complaining about food. They were murmuring. They were mistrusting. Of course, 
what does God do? He gives them manna, this bread from heaven. Manna in Hebrew means, what is it? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Let's just get to the point. Um, and interestingly, in Hebrew, you can also translate it, what is he, or who is he? So in a way, it's almost as if then Jesus sort of goes back to the wilderness, sort of redeems that lack of faith in, in getting our needs met, and Jesus becomes, it says that Jesus is the bread of life. So kind of takes over that temptation for us. He's our true bread. Now secondly, Jesus is tempted with uh, power and glory. So I think in the wilderness, there's a temptation, or we will be tried, especially in difficult moments, to be uh, turned to turn to human, our human image and our human power. The devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority. Hmm. Deuteronomy 6.13. What is wrong with the Son of God having all the glory and authority? Is there anything wrong with that? Not necessarily, however, in this context, it's the source. It's to whom he would be submitting. So the challenge was to not either manifest himself before his time and to not do it in the service of Satan, to not do it for the wrong reasons. So in this sense, temptation or testing isn't necessarily about that evil object or that undesirable that thing that we should never desire. It's about Jesus' ability to walk through vulnerable moments and keep from turning to worldly ways. Wilderness for us is going through difficulties and not turning to our own human strength. In those moments, we're exposed to ask ourselves, on who or what do we really depend for salvation? Are we willing to bow down to the adversary to maintain our human glory? Now, this may come as a surprise to some of you, maybe very difficult to believe, but I'm a little bit of an overachiever. Um, I don't have an easy time with letting go of my own human strength and creating an image for myself. Uh, it's not uncommon in academia to see a lot of that going on. A lot of people sewing vigorously and sewing the cloths and the, and the garb that they're gonna wear so that they don't appear to be vulnerable. And they don't appear to be at risk. So I can say that I am definitely in that category. Um, I'm actually really just a terrible poster child for vulnerability, because I struggle with it a lot. But if I can't be a good example, hopefully I can be a bad warning for you all. <laughs> so, um, so a few years ago, I, it kind of came to the fore, uh, not only this is before even the bike accident, but I have this really terrible performance anxiety. It's just like incredible, debilitating performance anxiety when I play music or when I sing. It's really, some of you know. <laughs> so um, a few years ago, I decided, you know, I'm really, I've, studied the, I've studied piano, I've, I sing a little bit, I really wanna give this the service to the Lord. So with the help of a dear friend of mine, we started a, a music ministry at the nursing home right down the hill, just, 100 yards down the hill. Now I thought, you know, I can overcome this. Usually I can't even sing in front of my mom. 
Um, but I can do this. This is for God. You know, I'm gonna, you know, I felt real self-righteous about all this. This felt really good. I thought, you know, I'm gonna think my way out of it. I'm just going to say, these people have nothing. They don't, they're, they're not gonna hurt me. I can play in front of them. So we got our group together, and I remember the first day going in, and uh, I had my guitar, and I had my songbook, and I was so enthusiastic, full of hope, and just ready to change the world. As you know, that didn't go well. Um, of course, I lost it and was not really able to play. Shaking, trembling, at one point lost the pick in the guitar. It, it, was, it was terrible. So a few months after that, I found myself sitting in a class with a bunch of 12 and 16-year-olds in a performance class at the Academy of Arts, trying to learn how to be in front of people. It's very embarrassing. So Johnny, why are you in this class? I want to be a rock star. Allison, why are you in this class? Well, I'd like to play country roads without throwing up. <laughs> and in front of an audience that can't really hear me anyway. Um, so needless to say, awkward. <laughs> I don't do well with those kinds of situations, but I can tell you what came out of that, um, and certainly in the nursing home, it was, a, it was a beautiful place of wilderness for me. It's really a place of seeing redemption and growth, um, not even so much for the residents, but even more so for myself. So just to kind of hammer this home about vulnerability being an important piece of the wilderness journey, um, I want to show you a clip here from someone who studies uh, vulnerability, Renee Brown. She's been researching it as a social work professor for, I think, 12 to 16 years. And she started to begin to see patterns in people. She found very functional um, in all of the dysfunctional cases she studied. She calls them wholehearted people, people who can live life with sort of abandon. My husband left town as a kid um, because I was going through kind of Jack and Paula crazy thing where I was like writing and, and going in kind of in a researcher mode. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came to the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your full heart. And so these folks had very simply the courage to be imperfect. They had a compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. 
They talk about the willingness to say I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willingness to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was a betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study the phenomenon for the reason, for the explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very, you know, my mission to control and predict had turned out the answer that the way to live is vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. This led to a little breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually was more like this. Uh, <laughs> and it did. It led to a, I call it a breakdown of this, it's called a spiritual awakening. <laughs> so why is it that we hate vulnerability so much? We hate those places of exposure. We like to clothe ourselves like in the Garden of Eden to hide that vulnerability. I think we clothe ourselves with religion. We clothe ourselves with rules and regulations that make us feel less ambiguous and less vulnerable. We clothe ourselves with stereotyping and criticizing an other, creating an other. We cover our vulnerabilities by using big, big words and sounding smart rather than expressing the fact that we don't know what the heck is going on. Um, we sometimes numb ourselves to that vulnerability. We choose to ignore it or deny it. So we aren't alone with ourselves. Um, we are not in solitude. We don't seek those places of solitude. We're not alone with God. Oftentimes we're covering ourselves with Distractions, electronic, alcoholic, caloric, whatever distraction you can find, um, so that we don't have to sit in those vulnerable places. So how do we learn to embrace our imperfections so that we can engage our, in our lives from a place of authenticity and worthiness before God? How do we recognize that we are enough? We don't have to be tempted by those lies that aren't enough. Notice in the passage, Satan says, he always starts out with a sneer, right? It's always that snide sneer that we fear is going to come at us. If you are the son of God, then prove it. That's the voices I hear all the time. If you really think you know anything, you have to prove that you can speak this language or quote this verse. So how do we overcome that? We notice that Jesus always quotes scripture. In the face of those lies, the demons really in your own head, um, to face the are you really or if you are a child of God, those kinds of questions, we rest on the truth of scripture. John 1, 12 to 13 says, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. 
So we cannot allow ourselves to be born and created in God's image if we don't allow ourselves to be stripped of our own fabrications. Deserts or wildernesses are oftentimes the places where, when submitted to the Spirit, we have that potential for recreation. So the last PowerPoint top, uh, topic and the last thing that, that Jesus was tempted by was by safety. He was taken to the top of the, of the pillar and uh, Satan says, you know, hey, throw yourself down. Now there was a, a tradition in Judaism at this time that we know from other sources, Jews were expecting the Messiah and they had a tradition that when the Messiah, Messiah appeared, he would appear at the top of the temple. So what's really going on here is Satan saying, hey, announce you're here. Tell everyone you're the Messiah. And then I will offer you safety. Now, is this a bad thing? Again, not necessarily such a bad thing for the Son of God. Um, but it wasn't the right time. It wasn't inherently wrong to need safety and security and not let your foot dash against the rock. But it was for the wrong reasons and it was at the wrong time. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with humans wanting security. Um, another thing that we can be tempted by uh, can be inherently good but used for, for bad. We rest in a world filled with 401ks, insurance, health insurance, prenuptial agreements, good fences that make good neighbors, or in my case, my food storage. I have a little bit of an addiction there. Um, that's another sermon. Um, so we have the ways that we sort of gather things around us for security, um, but we cannot rest in human security. We are called to risk, and we are called to not hide behind things that make us feel secure. And again, I kind of come back to the, the internet and Facebook and iPod in the sense that oftentimes those are the ways that we sort of hide. We sort of hide in sort of a form of security. We don't want to talk to the person, we might text them or we might Facebook them, but we don't want to really put ourselves out there. So it's not secure, it's risky. Um, and I think that we are called to really put ourselves out there. Does this mean that we seek trials, that we go out into wilderness and self-flagellate and, you know, live on a pillar like some of the early church fathers did, one who lived on the pillar for 30 years? I don't think so. But I think it is uh, a call to question if we're too comfortable. Because if you're too comfortable and your life isn't filled with challenges and risks for the kingdom, I think you're doing it wrong. Oftentimes in Christianity, um, we, we are sort of Christians up to a point. Up to a point my Savior leads me, up to a point I gladly go. <laughs> we are willing to go so far, but those places that are really uncomfortable, we're not willing to go. As Christian pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who perished in the Holocaust for his resistance against Nazism, reminds us that we are called to go all the way to the cross. What does that mean for us as the average Joe or Jill? Is this by grabbing the remote and being filled with channel-changing transformative powers? <laughs> Probably not. It's Probably a little deeper than that. It's risking your own human glory and security to, to love and speak up for the oppressed and the rejected, for your neighbor in the gay and lesbian or transgender community, to enter those parts of Denver that, where you can serve strangers or foreigners who are in our midst, to risk scorn by speaking up for your beliefs at work or not gossiping about your colleagues, 
these are the vulnerable places that we are maybe most afraid of, and they're also the places where God can transform our lives the most. So we see this um, wilderness then becoming a place of fear and danger and discomfort, but also at the same time, it can be a place of joy, creativity, and encounter with the divine. It's also a place of revelation. We saw in Sinai and other places. It can be a place where you really receive that inspiration from the Lord. In Celtic Christianity, they called wildernesses or places like that thin places, the places where um, uh, the closest place between the material world and the realm of the divine. A place where the world becomes so thin that we can experience or glimpse uh, the glory and majesty of God. This can be a place like a wilderness. It can be events, music, silence, or even persons can be thin places. So I would ask you, where are your thin places in this world? Marcus Borg says that one way to understand Jesus is that he himself was the ultimate thin place, sort of heaven and earth coming together, the closest meeting point between heaven and earth. But without being vulnerable in any aspect, we are not willing, if we're not willing to go into the wilderness, um, we also aren't going to find many thin places in our lives. It's, it's harder to encounter those places. So the last point I have is that we, de- we need to go into the wilderness. We need to embrace those things. And how do we do that? We do that with um, the power of the word. Jesus models for us vulnerability in this passage. First, by not avoiding the fearful or risky places. Second, by encountering the demons head on. Now, if I had encountered those kinds of voices in my head about, you know, you know you want some kind of voices, I probably would have had an elaborate conversation. Uh, I would have had a reason, uh, reasoning, well, no, I shouldn't eat the bread. Um, this is why. I would have had this elaborate thing in my head instead of just simply Jesus just quotes scripture. It says nothing else in these passages, but just quotes scripture. So at that point, um, we do need to rest on the Spirit uh, through the Word of God. Now back to our psalm, I just want to end with this. Psalm 91, since I, uh, this is what keeps me up at night. <laughs> it's so exciting. Uh, we learn something about this because the scrolls told us about this psalm being the anti-demonic psalm. This is what was performed and what stopped the powers of darkness. What now do we know more about that passage? Because Satan is quoting what? Psalm 91. Satan's quoting, you shall not have your, I don't have it in front of me, dash your foot against the rock. So what is going on? He's right on. Satan's right on in his theology. He knows that that would stop him, that there was power over him with those words being performed. That was a good thing in and of itself. So we suddenly realize this, but Jesus says, no, this is not the right time, and it's not in the right service. So um, the, last, the last point I would like to leave you with then is um, as you go out and you think about what it means to be in the wilderness for yourself um, and what it means to be vulnerable, I would leave you with a last thought is that 
Like Brene Brown, I think that without being vulnerable, we'll never achieve real communion um, in the body of Christ. We cannot have real communion with each other or real understanding of what it means to be in the Lord's um, body. One last person I'd like to mention is Jean Vanier, who is a French-Canadian philosopher, PhD in philosophy and ethics. He was a professor at the University of Toronto. In 1964, he, after buying a house in France, decided to invite two mentally handicapped individuals to live with him and to invite them out of the institution. And from that moment started an entire movement that he calls La Arche, which are these communities in which people live with those with mental handicaps. And he left his job, he left his teaching position to teach about ethics to live in this community. Today there are over 150 of these communities all over the world. And I will leave you with a few of his words. It is my belief that in our mad world where there is so much pain, rivalry, hatred, violence, inequality, and oppression, it is people who are weak, rejected, marginalized, counted as useless, who can become a source of life and salvation for us as individuals as well as for our world. For they call us to love, to communion, to compassion, and community. See, Jean Vanier knew what it meant to be vulnerable to give up the security of a good job and human recognition for something that was even greater. When Jesus began his ministry, he tells his followers, now go, go out into the world, bring the good news to others. Do not keep it for yourselves. Heal, liberate, bring life and hope to others, especially the poor, the weak, the blind and lame. Until we are in touch with our own brokenness, our own vulnerabilities, we're unable to connect with others on the deepest level. Real sharing and real communion. As Vanier says, there is a hidden strength in being vulnerable, open and nonviolent, in being a people of the resurrection, knowing that we are loved and that God is guiding us in all our fragility and littleness. We are not a people who think we are better. We are not an elite. We are people who are poor, but who have been drawn together by God and put their trust in God. So as you go today, I would ask you to think about a place that you might be called to, a place of riskiness, a place of vulnerability, and how you might embrace that. And I would also challenge you to memorize scripture, something we don't do so much anymore. Maybe a passage, a verse of Psalm 91, maybe the whole psalm. But arm yourself with the power of the word as you go forward and rest on the fact that we have the real word, capital W, the Logos, Jesus as our word, who is the ultimate example of vulnerability and brokenness for us. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took a cup and gave thanks and said, this cup is a covenant in my blood each time you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. The white cups 
are grape juice. <laughs> and the dark cups are wine. And all is body broken and communion open for everyone. And so bless his name. Close your eyes and think of your wilderness. As Allison was speaking, if you're human, you must have been thinking of a wilderness. Maybe uh, it's a disease, a divorce. Maybe you lost your job, a family member died. Maybe it's depression, it's some kind of chaos. It's a wilderness. Would you bless the Lord here? And so in your heart, just say, thank you, Lord God, for my wilderness. In this place, Lord God, speak your word. Let me know your word. Let me hear your word. Let me speak your word. You see, he's still speaking his word into the chaos, which is you, and making you in his image. And so, Lord God, we bless your name. We thank you for who you are. You are revealed in Christ Jesus, the living word, and you're good. In his name we pray, amen. And now before you go, if you'd like prayer, members of our prayer team are down front here, Kathleen over here, Biff over here. I would gladly pray with either of them at the drop of a hat. So uh, if you'd like to pray with somebody, uh, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, the word of God through a brother is stronger than the word of God in myself or something like that. But that is that God uses his body to speak to us. So be sure to uh, come forward for prayer if you'd like that. But right now, um, sit down, just sit down, just sit down. Um, because you know, in a lot of churches, they have these photo directories, you know that, right? And uh, they're just a pain in the, in the, in the whatever. Uh, because when you go to get your, we do this thing where you try to learn each other's picture and you go to the, get your photos, you have to get the kids dressed and everything, and then they try to sell you photos and you have to buy $300 worth of portraits that you don't want and all that stuff, you know. Well, we have good news for you. So go ahead and play the video, could you? Okay. Thank you. 
let me introduce you to Darth Vader. This is Darth Vader. And uh, a lot of you right now, you have smartphones. So pull your smartphone out right now. Just pull it out. Do as I say. Obey me. I'm the this pastoral authority, okay? Just go ahead and pull it out. Some of you have them, I know. Now, on your smartphone, before, phone, before you even leave this room, you can register on, you can go on to Facebook, okay? And you go to the family photo. Like our page. What's that? And you, like the sanctuary downtown. Like the sanctuary downtown. Then put your photo in there, and then we have a church photo album, and you can learn the names of the other people in this room, okay? And even if you don't have Facebook, you can send a picture to Justin, and we'll put it on there. So anyway, we'd love it if you would be a part of that. Um, I want to say a special thanks to Allison. I mean, that, she's great, and so thank you, Allison. Remember, there's, there's prayer down front and donuts downstairs. So have a great uh, Sunday. We'll see you next week. Believe the gospel. Amen. Hey there. I hope the message that you just heard or viewed helped you to believe a little more that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. If that's so, I'd love it if you would consider two things. Number one, ask yourself if there's someone that you know that might benefit from this message and then uh, forward this link on to them. There are several ways that you can do that by visiting our website at thesanctuarydowntown.org. Secondly, I'd love it if you'd uh, take just a moment and uh, ask the Lord if He'd like you to contribute to this endeavor financially. We really can't do this except for the fact that God inspires people like you um, to give. And uh, you can do that by uh, going to the website and clicking on uh, the donate button or uh, by simply mailing a check to the Sanctuary downtown at uh, 2215 West 30th Avenue, Denver, Colorado 80211. Uh, thanks for being a part of what we're doing, and God bless you.